For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We've been studying through the book of Acts, the exciting story of the early days of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And, you know, Luke, Dr. Luke has been writing this account for us, and he, he, he shared with us the successes, but also some of the setbacks and some of the problems that this early Christian community was running into. We saw in horror in Acts chapter 7, as godly Stephen was killed at the hands of an angry mob, which then triggered an attack on that church in Jerusalem. A persecution broke out that was very intense, and that persecution was spearheaded by a very powerful religious leader named Saul. Well, Luke also shared some positive stories of successes in Acts chapter 8, some, some good things that resulted from that attack on the Christians in Jerusalem. And yet, before we get too excited, Luke takes the camera and puts it back on the biggest visible threat to the church of God at this point in its history by uttering two menacing words to start Acts chapter 9, meanwhile, Saul. (laughs) Just in case you were starting to get your hopes up, just in case you thought they would move forward unhindered, meanwhile, Saul. Do those words strike fear into your heart? If not, then maybe we need to get to know Saul of Tarsus a little bit better. Who was this Saul of Tarsus? Well, he was born in a city called Tarsus that's about 350 miles north of Jerusalem in what is modern-day Turkey, south-central Turkey. And he was born to a family that must have been very, it must have been very influential and wealthy because some of the characteristics we know about them. Saul says later in this book that he is the son of Pharisees. That means that his dad and probably his, his grandfather, and who knows how many generations before them, were part of this elite sect of Judaism known as the Pharisees. You see, this was a group of about 6,000 of the holiest men in all of Judaism. We saw a number of Jesus' run-ins with the Pharisees, right, in the book of Luke. These guys were so holy that it was said that if only two people get into heaven, surely one of them will be a Pharisee. And so Saul was raised in a household that would have been very rigorous. He would have had, uh, it would have been very law-abiding. He would have had the scriptures pounded into his head from day one of his life. We also know, though, not only was he born to Pharisees, but he was also born into a family where even though they were Jewish, they were Roman citizens. Now, Roman citizenship was only something you could get by paying a huge sum of money or by doing some tremendous favor, some tremendous service to a very, very, very high-ranking Roman official. And yet Saul was born into a family where they, were, they had somehow acquired Roman citizenship. And so he was, didn't have to buy his way into Roman citizenship. He was born one. And that carried with it the greatest status in that society legal protections, and other benefits that are going to come in handy later in the book of Acts. And so as, as Pharisees, as Roman citizens, they, they must have been pretty wealthy. Also, they must have been pretty wealthy to afford his education. We learned that he studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Now, Gamaliel 
is a rabbi we know about even from sources outside the Bible, from ancient Jewish sources. This guy was the grandson of the great famous rabbi Hillel, the one who the Hillel Center right over there on campus is named after. Gamaliel was so amazing that they came up with a new title for him called Rabban. He was the first one ever to get that title, one of only seven to ever get it. And I guess they retired the title at that point, I don't know. But this guy was big time. And so for, for Saul, when he would have been probably in his early teens, his family would have paid to send him to Jerusalem to buy for him the finest education that they could have gotten him. To have studied under Gamaliel, this would be the equivalent of a PhD from Harvard. This would be the equivalent of studying physics under Albert Einstein. There was no higher status that you could get. And <clears throat> he was also a member of the Pharisees. But not only that, it looks like he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, according to Acts 26.10. Now, that would have been pretty unheard of for a man of his age. He was probably in his early 30s at this point. But, you know, for Saul, I guess he didn't follow the normal career path. I guess he was one of those few in every generation that just seems to be to break all the rules to shoot right past the normal things that people can accomplish and to be in positions of very high power at a very early age. And so this, the Sanhedrin, this was the ruling council in Jerusalem. And saw it looks like he was on that by this point. Yes, he says he was more zealous than his peers, surpassing all of the, the, his fellow countrymen, his colleagues, his competition. And you know, his intellect, he was brilliant. His intellect may have been why he took a different position on this Christian movement than his mentor Gamaliel did. You remember what Gamaliel said in Acts 5 when they were at, trying to figure out what to do with this, this fledgling Christian movement? Gamaliel was like, look, why don't you just let him go? Because, you know, God might be in this. And if God's in it and we fight against it, then we might find ourselves fighting against God. And so he urged for a conservative position. Saul wanted nothing to do with that conservatism. He was sharp enough to realize what a threat this was. He saw that this new way was incompatible with the right way. And he didn't see these as, two, as, as a sect that could coexist right alongside of Judaism as it had been handed down from the forefathers. No, he was intent on stamping this out. And he was so zealous to keep the law and so zealous to serve God faithfully and righteously that we see that he persecuted and killed Christians. Yes, it's in Acts chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, as the mob throws their coats to the ground to rush to stone Stephen, that they're, th they're laying their coats at the feet of Saul. We see that he's standing there giving his hearty approval. You know, in fact, Saul and Stephen... It looks like they ran in the same circles. The fact that they're laying their coats at the foot of Saul means probably that he was the one that brought these charges or was involved in this plot to get Stephen. And uh, also, kind of like Stephen, Stephen also saw that the old and the new way couldn't exist together either. He maybe saw that clearer than the other apostles did. And yet they both landed on different sides of that issue. We read in Acts 8.3 that Saul began ravaging this, the church. That's a verb that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of wild boars devastating a vineyard, the ravaging of a body by a wild beast. Luke says, you want to you think about what Saul's doing to the church at this point? Think wild beasts with a 
dead body. That's Saul in the church at this point in history. Think wild boars running roughshod over a helpless vineyard. Luke tells us he was entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He would not discriminate according to gender. He wouldn't just go for the guys and leave the ladies alone. No, he did not. He, he would arrest and persecute, even torture both mom and dad, men and women. He says, later on, I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. Yes, Saul would actually take people down to the Friday night gathering at the synagogue. You know, you'd show up for a Bible reading and there would be a Christian chained up. And Saul would demand that the guy curse Jesus. And if he wouldn't, he would flog them right there in front of everybody. A beating which could be fatal or at least debilitating for the rest of your life. Imagine showing up to home church and seeing something like that. Think how horrifying that would be. And yet this was, this was Saul's job. He was to take down and stamp out this Christian movement. I really like how John Pollock describes the, the reality of the situation in his biography on the Apostle Paul. He says, Paul charged like an animal tearing its prey. This was not the sad efficiency of an officer obeying distasteful orders. No, the heart was engaged and the mind too with the thoroughness of an inquisitor unmasking treason. This was the Inquisition. Paul went from house to house and then held formal inquiries at the synagogues when the congregation assembled. Every suspect, men or women, had to stand before the elders, the rulers of that synagogue, while Paul, as the high priest's representative, put to them the demand that they should curse Jesus. Yes, that was what he was calling on them to do. And thus... Paul heard the stories and beliefs of a cross-section of those who called Jesus Lord. Yes, he got first-hand testimony from martyr after martyr, sufferer after sufferer, as to why they believe Jesus is Lord. The majority were punished by public flogging, 40 stripes minus one, which was no sight for the squeamish. You ever seen the passion of the Christ? It's gross. Savage beatings. Granted, the courage of a few collapsed, probably. About to be lashed or after a few strokes, or when forced to watch a wife's or husband's torture, they screamed a curse on Jesus as Paul required. Imagine going back to, to face your brothers and sisters in Christ after that. He remained unmoved as men and women staggered away with backs, a mass of wheels and blood. I mean, you just got to imagine this scene. You know, here, here stands Saul having just administered another torture, saying, do you have anything else to say for yourself? But then imagine how many times the Christian would then look up and say, just this, that Jesus loves you. And even though you're his enemy, Saul, he died for you. And I pray that you will one day find forgiveness of sins. Imagine how aggravating that must have been to Saul. There was something about these Christians. They wouldn't break. And yet, it seems like his efforts in Jerusalem were somewhat successful at scattering, demoralizing, causing the church to have to flee or to go underground. And so it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats 
against the Lord's disciples. Murderous threats, again, this image of the wild beast. You know, Saul is really pictured as more beast than man up at this point in Acts. And so he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Yeah, things were going so well locally, he decides to launch an attack on a major city about 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem where there was a sizable Jewish community, apparently a sizable Christian community as well. He's going to go and he's going to get some of them too. Maybe catch them off guard. If he found there any men, any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so he heads off on the seven-day journey up to Damascus. And Luke tells us that he near, as he neared Damascus on his journey, something very unexpected happened. One of the most eternity-changing events in the history of the human race. He tells us suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He calls him Lord here. That could mean either sir Or it could mean something much stronger like it came later to mean in Paul's writings. It was the the term he reserved for Jesus. Here it probably is somewhere between sir and creator God. He doesn't know who's talking to him though. Who am I persecuting that would have this kind of power? Well, I'm Jesus. Who are you persecuting? (laughs) He replied, Now, get up, go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. Sounds a little ominous. (laughs) I remember my parents were really mad. They would send me to my room and so they could figure out what to do with me. I wonder if he felt a little bit like this. Well, the men traveling with Saul just stood there speechless. They heard the sound... They didn't understand what it said, but they heard the sound. But they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, blind. And so they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. A far cry from the beginning of this chapter where he's breathing threats and murder. Now he's led like, a, like an invalid into the city. And they led him into Damascus, and we learned a little bit later, they took him to the home of a guy named Judas, who lived on a a street called Straight Street, a street that we still know of today, still the major east-west road through Damascus, about about 1,500 meters long, built by the Romans. He would have been in a a little house off the side of this road that might have looked something like this picture from 100 years ago. And it says, for three days there in that house, he was blind. And did not eat or drink anything. So he's completely in the zone here. After this this vision from Christ. This visit from the risen Christ. You know, different people have tried to explain what this was. Was Paul dehydrated? Was he having a seizure? Was this a hallucination? I don't know how that would explain the fact that all the other people with him heard the voice. 
I don't know how it explains the blindness that came after that. He must have been pretty dehydrated if he went blind. <laughs> no, I think the best explanation is he was actually visited by the risen Lord. We don't need to seek some psychological explanation here. And he's blind for three days. And during this time, he would have had plenty of time to think. Here he is, brilliant intellect. Probably have most or all the Old Testament memorized. Had heard the testimony of countless Christians, including Stephen, one of the best. And he had plenty of time to think about what happened. I wonder what Paul was thinking during this time in his life. You know, he says later on, he says, you know, my gospel, my teaching... I didn't get it delivered to me by a human. I got it directly from God. And I wonder if it's during this time that a lot of the pillars of Paul's theology were being worked out, reasoned through, pillars that he would flesh out for the rest of his life. One thing he had to have been thinking is, Jesus is alive. Obviously, he was. And if that's true, then what does that mean? It means he was the Messiah. It also means he must have been sinless because he knew that the reason there's death in this world is as a result of sin. And so the only way Jesus could defeat death would be because he had no sin. He also must have been thinking, I'm alive too? He knew the penalty for sin. And yet here he was, he knew he had, he knew that serious sinners really deserved serious judgment, the kind of judgment he thought he was dealing out for these, these traitor Christians. And yet here he was, it's hard to get any more serious into sin than by attacking the followers of Christ and even somehow attacking Christ himself, killing, torturing. And yet he's still alive. That can't be because of his own good works. There must be some sort of other standard, some sort of other basis by which his life was spared. And thus the doctrine of justification. That it's not that I'm righteous. It's not that I'm so good. It's that Christ was so righteous and good and perfect. And yet he died on a cross. And so maybe, just maybe, Isaiah 53, where it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. That must be applying to him. He's realizing the doctrine of justification by trusting in Christ alone. He must have remembered Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall live by faith. Another very puzzling statement here is this one right here. He's thinking, I was persecuting Jesus we don't have any evidence that he ever met Jesus face to face. Surely he would have mentioned that in one of his writings. He must have been there and then gone during the ministry of Christ and then back again shortly after the death of Christ. And yet, how could I be persecuting Jesus? I was persecuting his followers. But that's it. It must be that somehow Jesus is so connected to his followers, that an attack on them is really an attack on him. And that when we are persecuted as Christians, Jesus feels every bit of that pain. Do you realize that? He's there right with us in all of our sufferings. His spirit dwells inside of us. 
He must have realized this must have something to do with how we can be counted right, righteous before God. Also, Paul's doctrine of the body of Christ. If somehow we're all connected to Christ, then by implication, there must be some kind of connection to each other as well. And then thus the body of Christ becomes one of his favorite metaphors for Christian community. Jesus is the head, we're his body. He's directing us. And there's a, a spiritual linkage between us and him and us and one another. And this is why as Christians, once you become a Christian, you can never be truly alone again. Because Christ is always with you and he's joined you to other Christians. Whether or not you're living that out or not, that's another story. But all of these things must have been circulating through Paul's mind as he sat there thinking over these three days. And after three days, God moves. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is different than the one from Acts 5. <laughs> if you're here, you know why. <clears throat> Guess it was a common name back then. And the Lord called him in a vision. He gets a vision of God. Jesus says, Ananias. And he says, what you're supposed to say when God calls you? Here I am, Lord. Yes, Lord. And he says, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. You know where that is? Yeah. I want you to ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying there. In a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So he'll be expecting you. <laughs> uh, Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man. All the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. I heard he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Yeah, the Christians at Damascus, this was no surprise attack. They had a tip-off that Saul was coming for him. They knew Saul the terrible was coming to Damascus. I imagine house church after house church had prayer meetings that week. Lord, Lord, protect us from Saul. Lord, spare our lives. Lord, won't you do something? Keep him from coming here, Lord. We're all going to die. <laughs> Leaders addressing their people. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready to pick up your cross and follow Jesus to death? Now's the time where we find out how strong our faith really is. Will you trust him? Look over at your, at your wife and your kids, men. Will you trust Christ to take care of them when Saul comes for you? Will you hold firm until the end? There was probably a lot of people down on their hands and knees that week praying, consecrating themselves to the Lord for the fury that was, they were certain was to descend on the church. What a big obstacle. How, how in the world are we going to escape the wrath of Saul? And so Ananias begins telling God some things that God might not have known about. Oh, sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the one who knows the end from the beginning. 
I don't know if you're aware of what this guy has done. I know people, okay? I know you said Saul of Tarsus, but is it possible you met Shlomo of Tarsus or maybe Sammy of Tarsus? Is there a Sammy of Tarsus here? And so God listens patiently and kindly to the whole speech. And then the Lord said to Ananias, go. (laughs) Which is sometimes the most loving thing that he can tell us. Look, just go, okay? The longer you stay, the longer till you get to see how I'm going to come through, okay? You got to act. You're going to see what I got planted. You're going to love this. He says, look, this man, he's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. He says, look, I know he's, he's caused much harm, much suffering, but I got plans for this guy. I know he's killed. I know he's blasphemed. I know he's betrayed and lied. He's caused so much pain. He's, he's destroyed families. I know that. But I died for him. And I love him. And I see something here that I've decided to use. And he's like, suffering, look, he's going to have plenty of suffering. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Really, one of the most forgotten truths in Christianity, I think, of following God is a call. It is a call to a life of suffering. It's, it's, it's a short life here, followed by an eternity of reward. But it's not an easy, comfortable life. Picking up your cross is not easy. And he says, just go, all right? And so he goes to the house. And he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul... Isn't that cool? Those might have been the first two words Saul heard from a Christian after his conversion. After all the things he's done. After all the people he'd hurt. Maybe friends of Ananias. He has Ananias sitting there with his hands on him saying, My brother, I accept you. God has accepted him. And now Ananias has accepted him. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. It always seems to happen right away, baptism, water baptism. But after taking some food, he regained his strength. He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once... He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. Well, how about that? He doesn't waste any time. Saul's not like an ease into it kind of guy. When he's convinced, he lives out his convictions. Man, so much for the theory that he went off to the desert for three years meditating in a cave before he tried to do any ministry for God. No, he started right away, which is always the best time to start serving God. It's always the best time to start sharing your testimony, to sharing your faith, is as soon as possible. 
No matter what's transpired in the past, he didn't sit around worrying about that, beating himself up like some of us are prone to do. He's like, no, I've been forgiven. I got to tell people. He was a killer. He'd spent his whole life almost missing the Messiah. And now he's going to go berserk for the rest of his life to make sure that nobody else does. To make sure no one else misses Jesus, the Messiah. And all those who heard him were astonished, understandably so. And they asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? These are the non-Christians wondering about this. I don't know what the guys thought who came to Damascus with Saul. Maybe it was them saying this. I don't know. Maybe some of them converted. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, baffled is the only thing that could describe how they were feeling at this point. And after many days had gone by, the Jews there conspired to kill him, just like they did with Stephen, just like they did with Jesus. They couldn't, they couldn't take this. They couldn't argue with him, so they kill him, just like the Stephen strategy. He says many days had gone by, this whole period of time, from his conversion until, until he travels back to Jerusalem, according to Galatians 1, takes about three years. So this, this, whole, this whole time, it doesn't tell us exactly how that three years was divided up, but I'm guessing, I don't know, months, maybe a year? It's hard to say. Maybe two years. But they conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Looks like also he had offended one of the local uh, rulers, a guy named Aretas, according to 2 Corinthians 11.30. Also trying to get him, it was a joint effort here. But his disciples, so he already had disciples, they took him by night and they put him in a basket and they lowered him down through an opening in the wall in a large basket. So somebody apparently had a house right against the wall of the city and they, they lowered him down and he escaped. He says he went off into Arabia, which is just kind of east, northeast, southeast of there, very desert region. He spent some time there until things blew over. He comes back to Damascus. You kind of have to piece the different, different versions of this throughout the New Testament to, to figure out the chronology. But he comes back to Damascus, and then he heads down to Jerusalem, and that all takes about three years. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. Last they saw, this guy was killing their friends, putting people in prison. They were not ready to trust him. What if this is a trick? You know, he, he disappeared into Arabia for a little while. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Good old Barnabas, son of encouragement, godly man. He saw something. He believed in Saul. He brought him to the rest of the apostles to vouch for him. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord that the Lord had spoken to him, how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so they accepted him. And Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. 
Galatians 1 also tells us the only apostles he actually met during this time were Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, that, that James. He hung out with Peter for like 15 days during this time. The, the total trip was probably longer than that. But he went around ministering. He also learned some things from Peter. They exchanged information as well. And it says he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. Was this the same crew that he was working with to kill Stephen, that synagogue of the freedmen that were from all around the empire? He's talking and debating with them, and just like with Stephen, they try to kill him. Acts 22 says, he was actually, I was actually in the temple praying, and he gets this vision from Jesus, and Jesus is like, you need to get out of here. And Saul's like, but, but they wouldn't kill me. And Jesus is like, you need to get out of here. Go. And so the brothers learned of this. They took him down to Caesarea there on the coast, put him on a boat, sent him back home to Tarsus, where they thought he would be safe. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, probably because Saul was a Christian now. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. No longer the fear of Saul, the fear of the Lord. And so the chapter starts with Saul leaving Jerusalem to go kill Christians. And our story ends with Saul leaving Jerusalem as a Christian, trying to not get killed. And so his life has really, has really undergone some changes over the course of this chapter. And I just want to end with just a few thoughts about Saul's conversion. Conversion is really a marvelous thing. Saul's conversion is a story of amazing grace. So much for the theory that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Here we have a murderer being elevated to one of the greats in the history of the church. Not the first one. You remember Moses? You remember David? Murderer, murderer. And yet God saves him. This is, not, this is not what religion teaches us. It's not that God's into murder. It's that God is a God of grace. And some of you have, have, have maybe done some bad things. Maybe, maybe some of you feel like, what I've done so bad... How could God ever accept me? How could I ever pay off my debt? And the story of Saul says, look, that's not how it works. Yeah, you could never pay off your debt, but Jesus Christ offers to pay that debt for you. And now you can take the worst sinner and elevate him to the highest position. And grace, grace is not only allowed to do that, but really likes to do that, loves to do that. Because it shows grace for what it really is. Saul's conversion was clearly initiated by God. It wasn't like Saul was out looking to become a Christian. He was looking for Christians to kill them. But we see all these ways God moves into his life. There's the obvious light on the road to Damascus. I mean, that was pretty overt move by God there to move into Saul's life. But that, that was not the first exposure he had had. Think about all the, the goads along the way. One of the things we learn in a later recounting of his conversation with Jesus is on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, 
it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what the goads were? This was in farming, you'd have your oxen and you'd have your little, little thing, your plow that it's pulling and you would, you'd put these, these sharpened sticks and you would attach them to your plow because the oxen sometimes don't really like getting harnessed and having to pull the plow around. Sometimes they would, they would kick back to try, to try to get free air, to just try to, to attack the, the one who's putting this harness on them, this, this yoke. And there were these pointy sticks, and the pointy sticks basically say, look, you can kick as hard as you want. These sticks aren't going anywhere. And the harder you kick and the more you kick, the more you're just going to hurt yourself on these. And so there were these things along the way that Christ had put in, in Saul's life, and the harder he fought... Jesus says, the more damage you're doing to yourself. Why do you resist me? You're only harming yourself. So all you think about all the testimonies from Christians that he heard, including Stephen himself. You think about Saul's own conscience. Think about this guy knew the righteousness required by the law. And although on the one hand, he had convinced himself that he was upholding the law, there had to be a, a little quiet voice inside of him that was like, yeah, but what about the part about how you shouldn't covet? Have you ever wanted something you shouldn't have wanted? It's a lot of times easier to see this side of conversion, all the ways that God was moving in your life along the way. But I bet you there's some of us here, maybe you haven't had the light on the road, but do you have goads in your life? Do you have that prick of your conscience reminding you of your guilt. You try to justify yourself, but it's not good enough. There's that, that sense, God says, that everybody has, that we know God is there. We know we don't measure up to his standard. What are you doing with that voice? You trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as, Saul, as Paul says in Romans 1? So he lived his life with these things, these goads. God was there the whole time. There were also the people of God in his life. There were the people before his salvation, before his conversion. But what about Ananias that moved into his life right after? What about Barnabas moving in, into his life? This, the Christian life is not something that can be done alone. God will send people into your life before you meet Christ, but he also puts people there to play a very important role after you meet Christ. You can't do it by yourself. I suspect God's put some people in your life Maybe that's why you're here tonight, because the people God's put in your life. God says, that was not an accident. Don't ignore that. There's a reason why your paths crossed. There's a reason why you ended up here tonight hearing this teaching. And yet Saul still had to respond. He still had to respond. He was not some sort of Mindless drone. He didn't get lobotomized on the road to Damascus. No, he still had a response to make. Both the response to bow before Jesus and say, yes, Lord. He could have hardened his heart even more. There was also the response he had to make. Am I going to serve God? Am I going to do it immediately? Or am I going to take my time here? And so there's still a response for you. Even though God has done so much to go out to you while we were still enemies, Paul says, Christ died for us. He's gone to you. 
Now he's calling you to turn to him, to yield to him, to receive the forgiveness he's offering you. And finally, Saul's conversion was an event that Saul would never forget. When he has to stand trial in Acts 22, what does he talk about? His conversion. Acts 26, standing before the courts, what does he talk about? His conversion. You read letter after letter, and you see this coming up again and again and again as Saul fleshes out what really happened there as he thinks back fondly on this event after which his life would never be the same again. The old has gone and the new has come. One of my favorite passages with Saul, who, he's going to become Paul. That's why I'm using those names interchangeably. 1 Timothy 1. Look at what he says here. He's writing to a man, Timothy, who he loves so deeply. And he says, Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord who's given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. He says, that was the moment I was put into service. I was drafted for the service of God. That's, what, that's one way to think about your conversion. You've been drafted. You've been called for a purpose. It's not just for you, but God's got a greater purpose than that for your life. He's got works for you to do. He says, even though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. No, he says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. That's another way he thought of it. The moment where I got flooded with the love of God. He's like, it was like a flash flood. And I got just just washed away along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what it feels like. That's what mine felt like. I just felt like a love I'd been longing for my whole life. I'd been searching for in all the wrong places. In a single instant of time, I realized this is what I've been looking for my entire life. And now I know the love that I always knew somehow that I was designed to experience. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. What reason? Because I'm a sinner. An especially bad sinner. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Yeah, he says, not only was I drafted and flooded with the love of God, but I was also put up on display as a trophy of God's grace. He says, you think you're bad. Look at me. Look what I did. Look what God did in my life. And he says, I just hope that somebody will look at my story and believe in Christ Jesus and receive eternal life. And Paul's wish here, his prayer, his deepest longing, that could be something that can become a reality in your life tonight. He says, I wish people would just look at my life and see God's patience, 
his mercy, and that, that they would too realize if God can love Paul, maybe he can accept me too. And so tonight, you need to realize if God can love Saul, he can love you. If he's patient with him, he's patient with you. Merciful with him, merciful with you. And maybe you too can become a trophy of God's grace. So there we go. The story of Saul. Very different man after Acts 9. The Lord, conversion is truly a miracle that you move into the lives of sinful people with your love. You offer them forgiveness purchased by your son on the cross. God, I I just want to pray right now for the the people here who have never come to you through faith, who have never come into a relationship with you, who have never experienced that that flood of love, that, that calling to service. That, sh- that showcase, God. I pray that those people would not go any longer, Lord, that they would not continue to kick. They would respond to your initiation in their life, God. I pray for those of us here who have never made that decision to step out and to begin to serve you now that we're Christians, Lord. Our Christian life has been about ourselves for far too long. I pray that we would no longer live that way, but that we would begin to live the life of love that you call us to. I pray for our efforts to share your love with people, Lord, that we would go out in confidence that you are at work in people's lives. That it's not us doing the the heavy lifting here, but it's you. And I pray, God, that we'd never forget the love you showed us, the the grace and forgiveness, and that we'd be able to say with with Paul that Christ Jesus came, came to save sinners, and I'm the very worst. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.